Welcome to the Security Operative Podcast. This is Tony O'Brien of Security Operative Consultancy Services, here to share with you my perspectives from the world of security and risk management. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode number 32 of the Security Operative Podcast. Tony O'Brien here again from Security Operative Consultancy Services. Uh, and this week we have another interview show with you. I'm delighted this week to have been joined by Mr. Josh Reeve from Empire Protection and Empire Training Institute in Australia. Josh is somebody who I've followed on, on LinkedIn for a long, long time. Um, I really enjoy his views. He's got a very, very holistic view of security uh, at the top end. A lot of experience in the protection fields, hostile environments, um, and in training. And some of his views in that come across in the interview. Um, Josh, as I said, runs Empire Protection, where they provide protection staff across Australia. Uh, he also runs um, the Empire Training Institute. Uh, and I recently had the opportunity to undertake their hostile environment and travel risk management training program, which I highly, highly recommend. If you stay on to the end of the episode, Josh talks a little bit about that. And he also gives a discount code for anybody who wants to undertake that program. And I'll put the links for that program and the discount code in the show notes underneath this. Uh, so in this, we talked everything about uh, the Australian security industry and similarities with the Irish and European markets, uh, standards in security, the issues around the quarantine hotels that they've experienced in Australia, and issues around security training and Josh's views on the security industry. I won't spend too much time talking about me. I want to get you over to the, to the interview. So thank you once again to, to Josh for taking the time to come and uh, spend it with me. Hope you guys enjoyed the interview. And as always, if you had any feedback or anything like that, feel free to give it to me in the comments or on the blog posts. Enjoy the interview, guys. Oh, we are on. Welcome to the show, Mr. Josh Reeve. Thank you so much. So time difference and all in place. So I appreciate you taking the call in the evening time, uh, morning time for me. Um, I'm beginning to look at the split screen here and get a bit of a get a bit of resemblance here. So I'm hoping that people can tell the two ball guys apart. You know, <laughs> so it's, uh, if it's any consolation, I'm going to call it a father son relationship, and I'll let people work figure out which is which there. You know, so. It's, uh, <laughs> Uh, so, so thanks for coming on. Uh, if we want to start off, I suppose, just introduce yourself and tell the world who Josh Reeve is and what you do. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, as you said, my name is Josh Reeve. I'm the founder and managing director of Empire Protection, which is a uh, high-end security protection and risk management business based in Australia. Um, also, with my business partner, co-founded the Empire Institute uh, last year, which is a online professional development platform aimed uh, at anybody in the security safety first responder space um really providing those opportunities for career advancement for you know knowledge entrenchment um, and just getting exposure to i guess expert information in a in a relatively cheap and easy uh, mm -hmm. easily accessible platform uh, my personal background i've been in federal and state law enforcement uh, and global security operations for coming up 20 years now um, uh, with the last five or, or so with my own shop mm -hmm. and you started off in in law enforcement wasn't it yeah so i did a little bit of security early on and then um got into uh the australian federal police quite young um did some time there in the protection teams and then uh the opportunities came along uh following that so i moved around a little bit to a few other things and then i uh joined the victorian corrections department uh, here for a few years some time in prison and then uh yeah join the, the freelance circuit um did some some international tasks and then uh just sort of realized from there that there was a, a gap i think in the, the service delivery standards i think there was um you know sometimes we worked with firms 
where the back end and the admin and the logistics and everything was really good and the delivery on the ground wasn't good. And then other times the teams on the ground were brilliant, but the back end service delivery um, sort of let operations down. So I thought, well, you know, it's a pretty niche market and over this side of the world, um, in Australia particularly because of our risk profile, it's not, not a, a huge market by any stretch. Um, but, you know, then we've branched that through Asia Pacific where there is a bit more of a market into places like Papua New Guinea and, and Philippines and throughout Southeast Asia, um, you know, where skills have to be that little bit sharper. And, and I think we've, you know, managed to find that balance between having that, you know, meeting those client expectations um, from a commercial aspect uh, as, as well as delivering that frontline product. So I think there's a lot of people out there that are amazing at what they do. And, and as a trade, as a tradesman, they're, they're brilliant, um, but it doesn't necessarily translate to starting a business or running a successful business and i certainly had to learn and how transferable sorry how transferable did you find the skills that you got in law enforcement were to the private sector oh extremely transferable although i think you have to be aware that it's a different world um you know that you're quite empowered in law enforcement i suppose to make directions and for, and for plan jobs and for you know to, to put conditions on jobs and to um you know, and, and, and in terms of your resourcing and your support and your intelligence gathering, all those things are just there for you. Um, whereas in, in, in the corporate world, quite often they're not. Um, you know, you have the luxury in, in, in government quite often of having large teams, um, whereas in the corporate world, as much as you can screen, mm -hmm. you're yeah. quite often alone or, or, or in a very small team. Um, we all know that clients have those budget constraints that, that we all, again, kick and scream about, but you don't have those issues so much in government. So I think... And probably the main thing is the customer service aspect, which obviously still exists in government, but, um, you know, we, we still hear guys saying, oh, I'm not going to carry bags or I don't open doors or I don't sing or do. Just do. Yeah. And if you want to make money out of it, that's, that's how it has to be. Um, so I think 100% transferable. And I think because there's such a big gap in the, the genuine training space, like the expert level training space, um, it would be so hard to get those skills and that experience in the private world because you'd be traveling the world to get it. You'd be going to South Africa, you'd be going to America, you'd be going to, to Europe, and you'd have to, to do all those things um, at your own expense. And, and it would cost, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, I suppose, to become that well-rounded, you know, um, operator. Whereas if you come from from certainly certain areas of law enforcement and military, I guess you've got that, that given to you to start with. Yeah, I think that the big difference that people never kind of realize in that it, with commercial training providers is that, you know, regardless of what they say on their website or whatever the case might be, budget always has to be and price always has to be a, be a concern you know, for, for people. And you're right. I think people grossly underestimate the amount of money that state organizations pump into making sure they have a zero failure rate. You know, uh, Absolutely. with a commercial training, but once you're trained, you're off their books and you know if there's a failure rate after that it's not going to blow back on the on the training provider you know uh, i think yeah. sometimes i find though that with, with particularly military not so much law enforcement that they sell the wrong skills that they've, they've learned you know they talk about i was in the military therefore i learned to shoot fight and medic you know <laughs> which are possibly, possibly the least used skills but there's so many transferable skills i think that in there that they don't sell like you know planning operations uh, the resource that goes into it, the intelligence gathering that they just they just don't bother selling, and you think like that's the real stuff that could make you money on the on the market there on the open market. And and I think also just 
also just from the um, discipline factor too. Like, you know, one of the things we find is that private guys, you know, it might look glamorous, but a lot of the time you're sitting in a car outside a restaurant for four hours watching the world go by or you're in the hallway of a hotel or you're in the lobby or, or whatever. And that's just a fact. And, and getting guys to do that, that asses and passes duties um, or, you know, it, like guarding the, the limousine in the underground car park for 12 hours overnight. It's not glamorous. It's not fun. And a lot of guys think, well, I don't want to do this. This isn't, you know, I want to be front and center. Yeah. And it's not what I expected. Whereas if you've got that military or law enforcement background, I suppose you've got that discipline and understanding that yeah. that's more likely what, what yeah. the task entails. And even, I don't know, it's the same over here, but over where you are, but over here we get a lot of guys that transfer from door supervision, you know, nightclub bouncers. And they're used to the constant interaction with the customer and they think that's how it's always going to be, you know, until they're mining a, a hotel hallway overnight while somebody's asleep in a, in a room and they think this is not what I, what I signed up to do in any way, shape or form. You know, there's transferable skills for, for certain parts of it, you know. So when you moved in into, you moved from law enforcement into corrections, was there anything that you took from corrections that supported you as you, as you moved on? Uh, yeah, I suppose... Um... Not so much in close protection, I guess, where you don't really have offender interaction mm-hmm. you know, for any length of time, hopefully at least. Um, but I guess in, in in terms of broader risk management and, and threat management, um, just that, I suppose, I don't know if comfort's the right word, but that, that comfort level um, dealing with offenders, you know, and, and understanding that, um, you know, even the, the people with the worst histories in the world can present perfectly normally and, and can have perfectly normal interactions and aren't necessarily always a risk mm-hmm. for your safety. That's why sometimes in law enforcement, we get you know, quite fixated on the fact that, you know, that, that that person is a perpetrator or they're the subject or they're the target. They must be must a violent be offender at all times. You know? <clears throat> it's not obviously the case. Um, so I think, you know, being in you know, rough ratios over here, we're like four staff to 120 prisoners. Um, <laughs> You know, you, you, be, you feel that vulnerability and you have to use your rapport building and your, your you know, people management skills, um, you know, to gain respect and, and, and to, so I suppose, play the game to some degree. You're in, the, in their world mm-hmm. as much as we might want to think we control it. That's probably not the case. Um, that's a very thin, thin line to walk. So I think um, in, in, in terms of confidence in that um, dealing with anybody at any time, You've dealt with some of the most high-profile, you know, baddest people in the world, and, and yet most of the interactions were probably perfectly normal. And yeah, I think it, it puts a different perspective that, on risk management. And that sort yeah, of I think that shows a huge difference between uh, academic and and practical risk management. You know, if you if you were to write down on a piece of paper that I operated day to day on a ratio of four to one hundred good guys to bad guys, <laughs> you know, uh, anyone doing a risk assessment on that would say. No, 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 no. That's that's <laughs> that's not good, you know. But when you live it, when you live in that environment, and you get used to the the situational awareness and the context that you're operating in, it, I suppose it just becomes second nature. You just manage the ongoing risk. It is, and it's about how you. I mean, everything: your presence, your bearing, the way you dress, everything about it matters. You know, if you go in there looking sloppy and acting sloppy, and and not, um, you know, not not managing your own behavior and your own performance and your own presence, then it gets found out very quickly. And that's a battle you're going to lose you know, quite a lot of the time. So I guess, um, you know, that, 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 that 
being forced to be mindful of your presentation to the world um, and, and how you're received from the world it was excellent from that. Yeah. So big jump and then, and then you made another big jump then you moved into the private sector. Was that, I know you're probably used to deal with regulatory bodies and things like that through, through the state work, but was that a, a, another culture shock for you then moving into the, into the private sector and probably having to deal with a lot of regulation in order to do a job that you've been doing for X amount of years in the public sector and now you had to all of a sudden go and get trained to do that, to that job? I was very frustrated to have to reset our version of the SIA's very basic entry level mm-hmm. qualifications. We do have a, a recognition of prior learning process, but it's very funky and arduous and, and ineffective. Mm-hmm. Um, so sitting in a classroom learning how to use a radio and all those sort of things again was, was frustrating, especially when I was paying thousands of dollars to have to do it. Um, that, that was annoying and it's a real barrier. Um, you know, we have a system here. I'm not sure how your system works, but if you, if you have you know, very, very little education over here or certified education, you can be funded by the government to receive certificate level training. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's that's done in security, it's allow people with no educational background, very little work experience to come through for free into the industry. But then when I want to attract people out of law enforcement or military markets, I've got to say, well, hey, come over here, do six weeks training for $8,000 in your own time then pay some more for some fingerprints and, and a license. And then after 10 or 12 weeks, you know, self-funded leave, then I can look at giving you a job. It's, mm-hmm. it's not very attractive. So we're almost, I think, pushing, not that, you know, lack of education or prior experience necessarily prohibits you from being or having a successful security career. But I think in general, we're, we're, we're encouraging one element and discouraging another. And, yeah. Yeah, I often say, say the same about, you know, they're trying to talk about, I always differentiate between the security industry and the security profession. Like the security industry is just there to churn out bodies. You know, that, that's basically what it, what it does. They come in at the entry level, they're going to stay at the entry level, they're going to leave at the entry level. That's that's as good as it's going to get. And I think the, the regulatory system has encouraged that. Like there's there's very little encouragement here for a college goer or university goer to want to develop themselves as a, as a, as a security career over here we've got yeah i know it's slightly different over there we've got a national license here obviously because ireland's so small you know uh, it's just one national license and we've got separate training courses you can be a security guard and that's a like a four or five day program you can be a door supervisor which is a four or five day program or you can do both together in a six day program and then that's it so we don't have close protection license and uh, anything like that you do those programs and then that's it you're trained you can go work anywhere in the industry um at that from the sounds of what you're saying it's a little more advanced than australia you're talking about six, six weeks or so they drag it out a bit more so we have level two training which is like basic security guard crowd control um, you know the, the standard sort of unarmed guarding static guarding roving patrol sort of thing and then you have level three which is meant to be supervisory level uh, and then from there you can branch off to do the electives of bodyguard or cash transit or armed guarding or Whatever, and from there, the Cert Four in Risk Management mm-hmm. intended to be a, a management level program, but um, because of the government funding, all it's really done is meant that everybody comes through and gets every certificate. So on paper, you can't work out who's any good compared yeah. to somebody else because everybody's got everything. So <laughs> it, it doesn't, you know, it was meant to be like a climb your way up the ladder, but the government funding just sort of eradicated that. Mm-hmm. Um, so while it is 
a lengthy process. It's certainly not a, I, I certainly don't think it's any better than the SIA, yeah. even that good. Uh, um, you know, the bodyguard component, for example, is five days. Uh, it's all classroom based. So, I mean, I wouldn't employ anybody on the strength of that mm -hmm. alone. It's, it's the mandatory requirement. Yeah. Um, so we have to have it, but I, it certainly wouldn't be something that we would employ based on. Yeah. And do you find, one of the issues that I find over here is that there's no differentiation between the minimum and the standard. The industry view is that when people come in with that certification, they are trained and, and that, that, that's what they, that's what they need and away you go, you can now work. I thought our system was bad until I was talking to some guys in the States and they said, you can just rock up one morning and say, hey, I'm a bodyguard or hey, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a doorman, you know? And you just decide that morning that this is what you're doing. So we, we've got little over here, it's better than nothing. But um, the, the thought process has been to expand the time spent training. But from what you're saying, and I would agree, just because you spend more time training doesn't necessarily make somebody better at something. I, I think the only way to fix it is to actually make, you know, the past mark the relevant factor. And, you know, I, I've, I've sat in and heard of so many courses where the instructor gives the answers at the end of the law exam, for example. You know, you're meant to learn the laws and errors of arrest and use of force and and have an applicable understanding of what that is. And yet you find out at the end, they just read the answers out and, and it's a useless process. So I think, but because they only get paid, as you alluded to earlier, they only, the, the RTOs or the training organizations only get paid a successful completion. They've got no interest in failing anybody. Yeah. Um, so people come out and you, you can interview them the next day after they pass their law exam. They don't have a clue. Mm -hmm. um, which you know it, it's it's really unfortunate because beyond you know that that has such a flow and impact right through the whole industry because anybody that is dedicated and does care yeah. knows they're working with people that don't so they think well you know why, why should i continue to make an effort when they get paid the same as me and they don't care and it has an impact because clients are recognizing that the product they're being that they're paying for is, is of low quality so they're not going to pay more for a product um so it becomes this catch-22 where we're saying well as an industry we can do more and we can we can provide you a better service if you pay more and they're saying well show me that first and then we'll consider it that's like who's going to make the first step you know? yeah it's, it's very hard when you're in that bubble where you're trying to be part of the security profession but you're surrounded by the security industry and that's what the client sees and you're trying to ask them it's like i always equate the difference between you need some plumbing done in your house you know, you can get your mate down the road to do the to do the plumbing, or you can pay for a professional plumber to come in and come in and do it. But yes. even at that, I think because the, the, the standard is low, the client actually feels that they know more about security than the person who's providing them. You know, I think it's one of the only industries in the world where they ring a professional and tell the professional how to do their job. Uh, <laughs> and and not only that, the the level of people. I mean, yeah, absolutely. And and even beyond that, though, with with major venues, for example, you know, it'll be an events manager or a facilities manager making typically the security decisions or it's in mm -hmm. charge of the security department ultimately. It's, it's not right. Um, you know, I've gone in and seen risk assessments for major, major events done by an event manager. And you think none of this is, you know, none of this is in line with what I would be recommending, but it's a, it's just a matrix document that they tick and flick to yeah, put in their portfolio and, I've seen some. I've seen some strange ones over the years. All right, yeah, and in risk assessments, um, especially facilities managers, and no disrespect to the facilities managers out there, but 
they write um, safety statement-based risk assessments and not security risk assessments, you know? So you might have, you know, a risk assessment for something like um, uh, a crowd disorder or as against something like um, breach of access control. And breach of access control will feature very, very low because there's no risk of injury or death from the breach of access. They measure everything on personal injury rather than, you know, integrity of the venue or whatever the, the, the case might be, you know? And it's it's very naive because I think a lot of that stems from it hasn't happened yet, so mm -hmm. we don't need to include it, which anybody in the profession knows is, is ridiculous. Um, you know, if something's going to happen one out of a thousand times, like we would say, well, that's actually pretty bad odds. Mm -hmm. um, and we hit that 900th event without an incident. We look and say, well, we, we're probably due. They look and say, well, there's the evidence. We don't need to do any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. no. And I think risk to reputation, one of the things we, we're so strong on is, I'll use this example. If you have a, a close protection task for, for two weeks, um, you know, that's, that's 24 hours a day by, by 14 days. If, you, if your client is attacked physically or threatened physically within that period, that, that whole thing, that whole threat incident might take an hour. But the time that the client's threatened, you, you manage it, you evac, you debrief, you, you clean that up. That's one hour out of what, 14 times 24, you know, whatever that, that's hundreds of hours. Only one hour was based on that incident management. The rest is still customer service. You have to have had the customer service prior. You have to go back to the customer service after. Um, and, and within that is that reputation management, that brand management. And it's such a big factor for, for major events, for celebrity clients, for you know, any, anybody representing shareholders, that is such a huge factor. Mm -hmm. um, and we can go back to the, the easiest example, Britney Spears' famous photo getting out of the limousine. Yeah. Like if she had security, that shouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. that, that's a, if you're aware that you have a, you know, an intoxicated client in the back of a car that, and there's photographers around, then you know, there, there should have been a mitigating process there from, yeah. from the security team. Is it, it goes, know, okay, yeah, she was safe and she was secure, but you know, that, that photo has been global for, for, for decades. Now. Decades, yeah. It goes back to the difference, I think, between uh, recognising that you're there to do risk management and not just threat management, you know, not just when the malicious actor arrives, but manage all of the risks that go around. And I think that that brand management thing, I think, can get lost in the security industry a little bit, you know, that you're, you're there to protect the brand as much as the, the asset itself, like the person or the, or, or the property. 100%. And if you look at it from a financial threat, I mean, you know, there can be huge impacts to, you know, a CEO or a board member or, you know, a high profile corporate identity. Um, you know, they might be at a, at a corporate dinner or something and they've had too many drinks. You know, that's definitely something that, that you need to dip diplomatically manage um, as, a, as a personal security team because, you know, they stagger out drunk. Yes, they can hurt themselves. Yes, they can hurt somebody else. But, they might say something to a camera at the wrong time or the wrong photo comes out, you know, that's, that's a fail if, if you don't manage that. You know? I think it's unknown how that, that particular picture and without picking on that particular lady, um, I think it's, it's unknown how many sponsorship deals or corporate sponsor that particular photograph has cost her over the, over the years. But I'd certainly say it has, you know, it's very hard to quantify, but I would certainly think that it has. You know? Yeah, hundred percent. Mm -hmm. And and also, if you have a, I mean, I suppose there's that that voyeuristic interest in celebrities in general, anyway. But but more so if it's executive protection or certainly diplomatic or, or 
government protection, you know, those things are absolutely critical. Like the, these politicians and diplomats and, and executives have a personal life. They, they do do things that they need to, to be private. Um, and whether that's, you know, the obvious things or whether that's just their opinions on a, on a phone call, for example, you know, they're, they're obviously welcome to those, but you know, it's, um, it's being aware of the surroundings for them and, and, and protecting that entire space is a huge factor. And, th and that's the kind of thing that leads to either repeat work for an operator uh, or repeat business for a company is, is if you can holistically manage uh, that space. One of the things that we see turning clients off so much in, in, in all realms of security is that over threat identification. So everything's a threat. We need to mitigate every single thing that, that happens. It gets so boring for and, and tiresome final for a team manager or whatever to constantly be mitigating and changing plans and doing you know you have to uh, assume some level of, of risk and absorb some level of yeah you know. we get a certain sense of threat blindness when we're constantly looking for threats we can often miss the one that's kind of right in front where you have the guys that are constantly looking at this could happen and that could happen and, and oftentimes you know the boy who cried wolf uh, comes in when you're constantly telling the client we can't do this because of this we can't do this because of this we become the no man you know you're constantly just saying no to things you know yes. and no, nobody wants that I, I always say that you know our, our job is not to tell people no it's to tell them what it's going to take to get to yes you know th this is what we're, <laughs> this is what we're going to need to make this a yes you know that's um, so well put and, and I think like in the private world, we are only about advice, right? So we can say, it's my recommendation that we don't continue with this, you know, this particular action. If they choose to ignore it, then they're free citizens. Like we can choose to then walk away from that job if it's that dangerous or that illegal or whatever the activity might be. But at the end of the day, we're not yeah. in a position to stop that person doing what they do. Um, and I think the big thing is like, again, across all realms of security is about normalizing the environment. So. You know, if 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 you're walking, you know, at, at midday in a business district from from one bank to another, for example, and a, and a and a heavily intoxicated, you know, rambling person walks towards you, okay, that might be out of the ordinary for that space, and you might think, okay, let's cross the road and go the other way to avoid that person. If if it's Saturday night in a nightclub precinct and there's drunk people there, you can't mitigate all those drunk people. You can't keep crossing the road every two seconds because it's going to get boring and tiresome for the five. You have to accept that some level of risk in that space and, and adapt and modify your behavior to absorb it. Yeah. Or just book out the nightclub just for you and not have any drunk people. <laughs> Good plan. Pretty boring night out though. Uh, <clears throat> I suppose I'll get onto the controversial bit, I suppose. We are in Ireland, and I think in the UK as well, but certainly in Ireland, we are this week just kind of ramping up um, or starting the legislations just come in to manage quarantine hotels. And they have just, you know, they've just awarded a contract. They've said that the, the, the police are not going to be involved in this. It's going to be private security, no military, no police on site. And the police will be on standby for, for a call out. Now, I've been following your stuff on social media and other stuff coming out of Australia. I know you guys have had um, mixed experiences with it over there. Some states have done it pretty okay, as you expect. And then other states have had, you know, some pretty critical uh, mistakes. What have your guys' experience of it? Been over there. What has your experience ever been? What, what have you seen being the kind of critical success and failures in, in the in the project over there? So I'm in Melbourne, um, and we went through a, a nine month or so period of lockdown because of hotel quarantine security failings. Um, I think it led to something like 800 deaths and, and 
we, I mean, you've got to understand Australia's almost had no COVID comparative to the rest of the world. So the only COVID we've had or impacts from COVID really have been from that program, um, killing people as a result of its failing. So it got thrust very heavily into the spotlight because of that. Um, I think without that, we'd be like you know, in the tens of deaths, probably, I think. Um, so yeah, yeah, I'd imagine it would be a very low figure. So um, it, it thrust the whole thing into the spotlight, but what it, it really did, um, as much as originally people wanted to talk about the failings of hotel security or quarantine security, it, in my mind, it just highlighted the flaws that exist in our industry and it, it put them on show. Um, there was nothing new that failed. It wasn't a, uh, you know, as a result of this particular program, it just highlighted all the holes that exist in the market. So, you know, over here, we have like tiers of subcontracting that water down and dilute a product. We have, you know, people being paid like ridiculously under minimum wage. And then obviously the product you get from that is terrible. We have people working, um, you know, they call it shift ghosting. So the, the company will say they're putting 40 guys on, but they've got 35 because they can't staff it. Um, we, we have people signing on with multiple different subcontractors at the same time. So they're getting paid three times, but there's gaps. All these things that occur all the time. They're not unique to that program. They're, they're what we see in the industry but they just got put on show uh, because as a result of it this time, you know, unfortunately people died. And I think we've just been lucky and, and, and probably scraped by uh, in the industry in general, because I mean, where is security, right? We're at critical infrastructure, we're at major transport hubs, we're at, at critical ports, we're at, you know, some very sensitive and critical spaces 24 seven. like tens of thousands of security guards working at any one time. Mm -hmm. And if their systems were to fail of this nature, that would be critical too. Yeah. Uh, I think just the media highlighted those holes we have rather than um, creating, you know, the, than the quarantine program creating it. So my answer would be in short, if, you're, if your security industry isn't uh, at a good level, then the quarantine program won't be at a good level either. Very much so. And that's, that's the real concern I have here. They just drafted the legislation, like I said, and this specific parts of the legislation where they've given permission to contractors to subcontract and you're going, you're just setting it up for failure from the very, very beginning. Like, and, and I suppose whatever excuse you could make for Australia being the ones who piloted the program and, you know, hadn't anywhere where they could learn lessons from, like, you know, we can, we can obviously look to Australia and say, look, this exact thing went wrong over there. You know, <laughs> this exact thing is what went wrong. We've, we've been complaining as an industry, though, across the board for years about subcontracting and tiering contracts and, and all the things that, that this failed. You know, there's there's stories of guys working an Uber for 12 hours and then going to quarantine security for 12 hours and, and so, you know, back and forth. And, and originally they were the target. They were the focus of the, the anger about this. But then you realise, well, he's being paid half the legal wage with no insurance, no conditions, no entitlements, you know, because he's you know, on the fifth tier of a legal subcontract. Mm -hmm. Of course, he's working two jobs. You know, he's got to feed his family somewhere. So, yeah. you know, it, it, it just brings to light any gaps in the market. And, you know, my message all the way through this was, like, this is a high-risk, high-profile, reasonably specialist task. It's not hard. It's not a difficult task. Mm -hmm. But it requires, you know, high-level planning and high-level dedica dedication to management. I think high-supervisor-to-staff high ratios. Um high levels of integration with 
you know, the government departments that are ultimately overseeing it, whether it's health departments or you know, law enforcement or whoever the parent lead agency is. Um, and they're all the things that didn't happen here. You know, we had like at one point, you know, there was heaps of hotels running quarantine programs and, and whether it was medical staff, security staff, cleaning staff were working between the hotels because a lot of the companies would, would get five or six contracts and the staff would, would rotate around. But then once somebody caught COVID, they then spread it all the other hotels. to all the hotels, you know, and then those workers go home to their families and spread it to their families and, and, and so on. So it was, it was easy and obvious yeah. to, to work it out, but the complaints were not enough PPE, you know, uh, our federal government put out a, I guess like nine minutes online, um, a COVID safe training program. That was the only standard required to, to work at these things for, for months. You know, and it didn't teach people how to wear PPE appropriately, you know, um, how to take off PPE, how to put on PPE. You know, people were putting it on and then grabbing their phone, you know, like put the gloves on, touch the door, touch their phone, take the gloves off, touch their phone again. Like, you just ruined it. There was no point. Yeah. I don't think, that, like, like you said, I don't think there's any maliciousness in it from the operators themselves. A need to feed a family and lack of knowledge. And I think that, uh, as I refer to, it, I don't want to demean anyone who's in that level of the industry, but that minimum wage mindset that my job is not important, and you know, because I'm just a security person, and you know, this is probably one of the first times in, in our history as a country that security people are going to have a, a life and death role, you know, high profile. That look, you not doing your job correctly could kill people, you know. Yeah, correct. Uh, very and, and you know, that's what I get at, at across the board, like whether you know. You've got security hours working at nuclear installations or, or critical mine sites or, you know, like, you know, banking in infrastructure, whatever it might be, like these things quite often have the potential for a life and death result mm-hmm. um, if, if we fail in them. And, and it's just that this one was, was brought to light and, and, and I think has a high potential anywhere it's rolled out to, to have the same results if it's not treated like a serious project. Yeah. And, and my, my issue with it was... That they went to the the, the the same mass-produced manpower companies that the government always goes to, who provide that bare-based product. Um, there's no creativity to it. There's no tailoring it to to meet a task. You know, I've spoken to ops managers who who went around and planned these projects, and it was just like they were planning any other event. And 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 again, it's not about slandering any individual or any, any person. It's just a lack of dedication and knowledge and, 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 and um, you know, treating this project like it's a specialist project, which, which it obviously is. Um, and so I think finding specialist firms and, and even if that means, you know, if somebody had come to me to take that, that project on, we would have done it, but we would have done it in, in, a, in a way that we were capable. So, you know, we've got enough, we, we would make an assessment, we've got enough staff to run one hotel. You know, we will run that one hotel, we will run that well. Provide the extra training, the extra consultation, you know, for the money that's that's there. You know, there should have been money to get external consultants in about, um, you know, forensic cleaning and, and, and the appropriate wearing of PPE and all those things. Um, but they, you know, swallowed up in the profit margins of these big firms that didn't care. Uh, and then we rebooted our program after we, we blew it the first time. Um, Rebooted it and, and the same thing. Let's right? the same thing again. <laughs> Shut it down again. You know, and the, and the states that 
that aren't having the, the the outbreaks, you know, we're still seeing those issues. Now. We're still seeing the subcontracting. We're still seeing, you know, guards falling asleep. We're still seeing, you know, people stuffing around because again, like, are they being rostered for seventy hours a week? Are they doing like five or six 12 hour shifts in a row? Of course, they're going to be bored and frustrated and whatever if they are, you know. Um, yeah, so I, I think even the, the places we've had that haven't had outbreaks have certainly still had the, the same exact climate and environment for those. It just hasn't necessarily happened. I know you guys had inquiries over there. Have there been any kind of uh, repercussions for the security providers from that? So the only inquiry was established by the Premier of the state who led the failed program. And it was an <laughs> He basically went to an ex-judge that he had appointed and said, can you say what went wrong? And every single minister in person said, I can't remember, I don't know. I wasn't there. And then that was kind of the end of that. So no, um, at least the recommendations came out about you know not working at multiple sites. And, and in fact, now if we reboot, we're looking at, at a dedicated uh, facility at a regional airport um, where they can walk from the plane to the facility. It'll be like separate cabin styles so they can have some outdoor space, everything separated. There's no air conditioning, you know, recycling issues. Um, it, it'll be done completely differently in that, in that fashion, but you know, it's taken over a year to get that right. Yeah. Has there been a business impact even on the, on the providers there? Have they suffered in, in any way because of it reputation-wise or...? Uh, I think they, they didn't get enough um, bad press. I hope there's still more to come, to be honest. I hope um, I hope this gets highlighted, you know, as far up as coroner's courts. I mean, somebody needs to answer for these things. And, and, and it, again, like secure, private security, as you said, there's a difference between the industry and professionals. But I think the damage to the industry now is... It's like, well, are you just one of them? You're just those guys that made us all sick you know that's the joke there's every security person must be you know you, you just failed everybody and, and you know, it's, it's obviously not the case but it's like how do we get the message out there that there is that industry and there's that professionalism and guess what that professionalism comes at a higher cost and mm -hmm. all those other things that you know, it, it comes with and yeah people are going to be willing to make that transition I guess yeah, I think it comes at a higher cost cost to both sides. So there's definitely a higher cost to the client. But if you're anything like me, you know, the money you invest in yourself to, to change from being a member of the industry to be a member of the profession is, is, is huge as well. Like, you know, so, you know, this, it's not just I'm charging you more because I think I'm better. You know? <laughs> and, and, and we can, you know, we, we, I mean, I had a client a while back asked for a quote and I gave it to him and he said, oh, are you aware that you're, you're nearly twice as expensive as another quota had. So well, no doubt I'm twice as good. You know, it's it's I'm I'm not shy to have that conversation. You know, it's not being arrogant. We have the runs on the board to back that up. So you can say you need to say those things as long as it's true. You know what I mean? It, don't say those things if it's a marketing tool, because you'll get found out. If you can deliver, then then demand it and don't bastardize your product to get there because yeah. you have paid for the training, you have you know spent how many years getting the experience. And like, you know, this is a trade, like, you know, whether it's a mechanic, a plumber, or an electrician, you know, they get paid decent rates for being a tradesperson. Like we respect their qualified trade, you know, in Australia, at least like the higher end security training is, is on par with that of a carpenter. 
Yeah. Um, so, so why aren't we treated with the respect that it is a trade? Like, and, and the answer to that is we don't, enough of us don't sell that skill properly. Yeah. You know, we just turn up, we look like crap, we complain, we whinge, you know, we, we, we talk on our phone for a bit and then we go home. And then we wonder why we've got a bad reputation. Like, I can't understand it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and where we've, to be honest, where we've formed our niche is actually filling that that middle gap between, you know, in, like internal security teams directed to the client um, and their their contractor. And and where we've found a niche is in that gap in the middle, saying, okay, let's work out how we can get more out of your contract. We understand mm-hmm. you know, if you're a national client, you need thousands of guarding hours a day. We understand you're going to go with a cheaper product because the budget is massive. Mm-hmm. But let's work out what we can do in, in whether it's training policies, procedures, um, you know, physical penetration testing, risk assessments. Like, how can we get a better product out of what you're already paying for? Because we found that the security guards themselves are super receptive to that. Like, nobody wants to be shit at what they do. You know, like, I mean, there's a couple at the bottom that just don't care. Most people don't go to work and go, oh, I'm just happy to be crap. Like, it's a lack of opportunity and a lack of anybody caring about their progression, um, you know, to make that any better. So, yeah, we, we've carved a little bit of a niche there working between the two. You know, you might get a 100-page risk assessment or security template from a client. That's brilliant, but your, your security guys aren't going to read that. So, okay, let's turn that 100 pages into 10 pages and put them into a flipbook and make it an easy-to-read reference guide, and now we might get something out of it. Is that where, um, I know, because you know, you said the start, you've got empire protection and you've also got the training end of things. Is that where the training end of things came from? Was that recognition of need? Or To be honest, um, it's something we wanted to do for a long time and we never really just had the time to do it uh, until COVID, to be honest. Um, our international borders are completely shut um, pretty much since since the start of COVID. So we our operations um, slowed down significantly because... Quite often we're traveling to Asia, our clients are traveling in from, from all over the world. Um, and it just gave us a chance to get that project rolling, to be honest. So we, um, yeah, we, 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 I think originally it was probably penned around being like the Empire Protection Entry Program. Like if you want to work for us, you know, you need to come do this course because that sets our standards, um, you know, what we expect you to operate like. And then... Yeah, that, that just became the, the program. And, and um, I think because of COVID, we saw everybody selling Zoom classes and all these things. And we thought, you know, okay, that, that's fine. But by putting it on online platform, self-paced, um, it allows us to drop the cost, you know, massively compared to what it would be face-to-face. Obviously, we can follow up with, with Zoom or face-to-face engagement after that introduction course. Um, but, you know, we think we found a balance of getting out some pretty good information yeah, you know, at a reasonably high level without being being arduous or too time consuming. Yeah, I had the opportunity, as you know, to do your, your hostile environment training, and I think I think you're right in that. Like, it, it took me three three to four seconds to sit down and go through it. Like, there's a lot of information to take in. If you were trying to do that face to face through Zoom, I think you're you're right. You would you'd very quickly burn people out very very quickly. Uh, but it's, it's a brilliant program, as I said to you at the end. Like, it's. The, the depth and breadth of the information is, is fantastic. And, you know, for a travel risk management program, there's, there's a super amount of information in it. Do you, do you think that's going to be an area of growth weight around travel risk management for, for or training travel risk management um, as things open up again? 
I certainly hope so. It should be. I mean, you know, I'm not even saying that from a commercial perspective. Like travel risk management is such an under uh, utilized and under recognized uh, skill and requirement. I think, um, you know, and and, and I'm, I'm really wrapped with your feedback because we didn't set out to be a training firm. You know, it's not like we we, we put everything into that, and we're not. You know, we've all got training backgrounds, but it's not like that was our, our desire. We literally just penned our information. You know, I literally, this is what I know about that. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you about it. You know, and we, we played around with it till we found a, a, a method and a platform that hopefully made it okay. But, um, you know, that was our just way of getting what we know across what we think will be useful from what we know across to other people. And um, we're going to keep doing that. We're releasing an advanced close protection course uh, in a couple of weeks, situational awareness course a couple of weeks after that. Um, you know, we, we, we're going to keep building on it over time. But I think, you know, back to your specific question, I think like travel risk management everywhere in the world is a hostile zone these days. Yeah. And, and it used to be you said heat and, and the hostile environment and it, and it conjured up like you know, the, the, the deepest, darkest places of the world. But like Portland, Oregon, like who would have thought for months on end that would have been an extremely high risk environment? You know, you know even Australia has had like, six or seven genuine terrorist attempts or, or you know, some result of a, a terrorist attack in the last couple of years. You know, it's um, New Zealand, like, should be one of the safest places in the world. They've had one of the worst mass shootings anywhere, you know. Um, and I think post-COVID, um, places that we're super familiar with and we have a cover zone, like in Australia, everybody goes to Bali, Indonesia, right? It's close and it's cheap. Everybody goes to Bali, like, it's like a million people a year. So everybody knows Bali and they get, I think, um, like a sense of immunity to the risk. Like there's still a lot of risk. In, in, in yeah. But oh, I've been to Bali 20 times. I know the hotel guy. I'm, I'll be fine. You know? um, probably not true anyway, but nobody knows what Bali is going to look like post-COVID. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're a tourist country. Their economy that would have been crippled. Like they've survived literally on Australian tourism and it hasn't been there for yeah. so long as we, we're not allowed to travel like so what's that done to their crime rate what's that done to their risk and threat environment like but people are going to get back on a plane and go i'm going back to my favorite hotel in bali but who knows what that looks like mm-hmm. and, and yeah that's just an australian example i'm sure you've got yeah no it is yeah you talk about places like uh where we've seen terror attacks like paris in the last number of years, you know, even um, protests on the street in Germany, Romania, Poland, places like that, you know, that spark up out of out of nowhere. We've we've had our issues around uh, street protests over here, you know. So yeah, there's, there's no knowing what the what the landscape is going to look like as we as we come back out of it, you know. Uh, and you're right, those those places, you know, south of Spain, Portugal, who would have been purely surviving on on. on Tourism and the drug trade that, that's elicited from tourism haven't had tourism. So, you know, what have those people been doing in the meantime? You know, what, what's the environment they've created or the culture they've created now when this opens up again, you know? Uh, 100%. And even, even safety things like has, has um, you know, has, has maintenance been done on hotels and like, you know, for example, people that might hire boats or jet skis or, you know, all those other activities that we'll do. Has that, like, has that been serviced in the last two years? Probably not. They didn't have any money, you know? So all these things might've been kind of left behind and like, you know, simple things like have fire extinguishers been replenished and updated and all those things, you know, it, it may well be that now's the time they haven't. 
because everybody's saving costs and cutting costs and yeah. just trying to get back operational again. So you know, there's, there's all those things to factor in. And, and, and with that, that travel management course, your heat course, it, it really focuses on empowering like an individual. This isn't just aimed at, at um, you know, close protection teams taking mm-hmm. people away or people going to Kabul or, or Islamabad. It, it's aimed at like tools that you can use everywhere you go. You know, you, you could use some of those tools just going to the shop in yeah. your local town. Um, not that you'd probably need to, but you know, I think they're applicable. Yeah, I really everywhere. Like, and not just... I really like the, the section there about the you know the day bag and having something you can put in a bag. And stuff. I remember doing an, an American version of a hostile environment course a number of years back, and they were on about you know have a firearm, have a backup firearm, have some night vision. Um, you know, <laughs> you know, there was no journalist stroke holiday goer in the world is going to back. Packing while going on holidays, a firearm, backup firearm, two torches, a knife, and some night vision goggles just to go to the beach, you know, uh, as they as they walk around. But you're right, giving people the tools that they can empower themselves, you know, so you you are your own help when you're when you go out there and you possibly don't have the same level of support and resources. And we don't know what the, the policing situation is going to be like in those countries now, you know, where we're lucky and i think you guys are lucky over there and that generally when you join the police it's a career and you know even if, if the economy is bad they're not going to sack police officers but that's not the case in a lot of countries where police officers are not a career it's just a job you sign up you do it and you leave after a year or two you know it's a um uh, have numbers been been pushed down because there has been no tourists you know uh, it's not the sort of thing you can research because it's not going to be publicized until you actually get there and land on the on the ground the publicity pictures are going to be the exact same but that may not be the landscape as you as you arrive so i think that empowering is huge i think it's it's very important for travel risk management and, and we tried to aim it even for like we tried to picture travelers who who should feel at risk or who, who may feel at risk whether it's uh, whether it's real or perceived um you know we tried to look at that and even like um you know parents of of, of like students taking their gap year they're going to travel around india for six months like no doubt like i'm a parent that would make me really nervous you know? so mm-hmm. i'd want to know that my kid has some basic level of, of planning skills and what are they going to do if this goes wrong and what are those triggers to, to kind of know when something's going wrong um you know that, that that an untrained person may not be aware of and, and just giving them those basics it's not about being like overprotective and ruining the fun but it's just about having an understanding of what are those triggers and then what are some options I have. Um, and, and we talk about just having a security mindset there um, in, in kind of everything you do and just embedding that into, which, which you know, most of your listeners and, and, and certainly you, that's what we, like we do that naturally, right? Like, you know, well, We um, expect everyone else to do it as well when, when that's not the reality, you know? 100%. And, and, you know, we were shocked, I guess, like I actually, um, <clears throat> actually gave a, a brief version of this, of our course to a um it was like an over 50s camping facebook group and i gave a live video about like how to camp safely and, and how to plan that trip and but they were so it was like the best reception you could have and i never thought that would be a target audience for a hostile environment course because you know from our world we think it's about like yeah you know, travel to the middle east kind of thing I was remembering that on that mindset piece a number of years back, I was teaching in a university, I was teaching a self-protection course and free self-protection course that the university were putting on and 85% young female first year college students, you know, I was talking about not being in city places and, and one of the ladies there said, 
yeah, it's, it's like that field at the back of the hospital. There's been like eight people attacked there in the last number of years. And I'd be terrified when I'm walking through it at night. <laughs> why, are you, why are you walking through this field at night? Like, yeah. And she said, oh, well, because it's the, it's the quickest way home. You know, and from a security mindset point of view, you're looking at her and going, you idiot. You know, you, you know why, why are you doing this? But that's just not the way some people in the world think. They think it's the quickest way home. Yeah. And she was explaining to me and, and her stuff rationally made sense. She said, like, there's probably 200 people a day walk through that field. And there's only been eight people attacked in two years. You know, so statistically, I'm really, really safe. You know? <laughs> From a security point of view, you're banging your head off the table going, you know, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, 100%. And, and, and I think that's, you know, that, that's where everybody in security, like particularly, like one thing I'm excited about is if, is if we can hit people that have got, you know, minimum level security training, <clears throat> like they've done the entry level stuff, but provide information that elevates their, their, their ability to operate in the way they they do things and hopefully their career in general. Um, you know, what we talk about in, in, in travel risk management, or hostile environment you know, training, it, it's applicable. Like most of the stuff's applicable across so many fields. It's about, you know, it might not be about specifically traveling from point A to point B. It might be fixated on the static location that you work security at. Um, but the, the same processes apply about, you know, it might be a roving patrol that you're conducting. You know, so where we've talked in the program about, Route planning, you can apply the same thing to that patrol route that you're about to walk or, yeah. or whatever. You know? And I think, Your I think route it gives people an opportunity to, um, you know, just start thinking the right way and, and, and increase even like the language and the verbiage that we use. Um, you know, we're, I think, like Byron Rogers says it really well on his podcasting, like you can identify somebody immediately with their, with their verbiage and their language and like, are they using the right terms? Do they understand things? You can identify somebody who's, who's got experience and been around and, and, and you tend to network better with those people. Um, you know, and I think if we can give people that opportunity to get some exposure to even that language and how we think and how we talk and, yeah, you know, it, it, it might increase um, you know, their respect levels in the industry and, their, and hopefully their desire for their own learning moving forward too. Yeah, I think that's a, it's, it's a really good point. I was talking with a security consultant during the week about that, about you know things like LinkedIn and writing articles on LinkedIn and stuff like that. And you said like the issue that sometimes you come across on LinkedIn is it's, it's a little bit of an echo chamber. We talk about security to people who already work in in security quite a bit, you know. I mean, maybe don't get it out to the people who really need that information as much, um, because we tend to be connected with people who are similar to us on a, on a networking platform, you know? So there's loads of really, really good information out there on LinkedIn, I think, but, you know, are we actually, is the right audience actually hearing it, you know, uh, outside of our own? It's, it's a little bit of an echo chamber sometimes, I think. I think you're hundred percent right. And I think we need to, we need to find a way to integrate security into everything. That's where we go back to the facilities managers and the event managers. We need to, um, Know, there's a saying in Australia, like you're the redheaded stepchild, you know, um, that's like, I think security seen as that. It's like, we don't want you here. With, you know, I know there's a law somewhere that says I have to pay for you to get insurance, but like, I don't really want to hear from you. And I don't, I don't really care. Just go in the corner and be quiet. You know? And that's just a waste of everybody's time and money. And, and, and unfortunately it, it creates risk. So I think if we can find a way to integrate ourselves into the, 
soul of the client. Like that's, if I get one message to anybody listening to this that wants to take a message away, like the client cares about their operation. It doesn't matter whether it's close protection or, or the most basic guarding job in the world. They do what they do to make money from what they do. You are there to support them in doing that safely and, and effectively. And that's it. It's not, they're not about security. They, they don't care. Yeah. It's, do it in the background and keep it good and that's it. Like if everything you do has a mindset of how does this help my client achieve their goals, then that's when you stand out. Uh, I remember talking at the start of the pandemic, there was a, a drive over here to have, um, they were talking about passing specific legislation to make it a specific offence to attack an emergency worker, you know, police, fire officer, ambulance. and there was a drive to get security workers uh, included in that, you know, and at the time I said, look, we need to differentiate. We are not and are never going to be regarded as emergency workers. We are the people who enable the emergency workers to do their jobs effectively, you know, and that, that's what we should be aiming at, you know. We support businesses to make their employees more effective. We don't make the business more effective. We support the business to let their employees do what they do very, very well, you know. But I was just talking about this week in, in an article I put out was about, um, you know, we have a tendency to talk security at people. We don't talk client, you know, or business. We talk security at people uh, when, we're, when we're doing it. I think that's a that's a huge thing. You're right for anyone to take away from this. What you just said there was, you know, we have to understand where we sit in this in this thing, you know, and talk like the client, not like the security people. That's a hundred percent true. Like, and, and and we put ourselves, you know, we get put in that corner by by the client, and 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 we happily go there, and we kind of act like that's where we're meant to be. You know, one of the things we talk about in one of our basic courses is like, if I tell you to turn up in a black suit for a job, like there's a black suit and there's a black suit. Are you wearing, you know, Nike runners with the, the white bit crossed out with black marker and are the pants like ironed terribly and they're the cheapest possible and they don't really fit? And the jacket was your great grandfather's from 1947, like, or... You know, did you go and get a suit that fits and that looks the part and the tie is done properly and it reaches your belt buckle and it looks because the tech service you might say wear a black suit, but there's two extremely different products there. And a lot of people might think, oh, well, is it a big deal? It is. Like it's a big deal. You know, and 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 it's those fine details in all those everyday jobs where like I can even remember times, particularly when I was younger, where I don't even know why I'm doing this task. Like I have to do this every night. I don't even know why. Either find out why. So you understand, or don't worry about why, just do it to the best of your ability. Like it's there for a reason. Most definitely, yeah. Yeah, I've worked a lot in, my background's in hotel security. So like five stars and, and you know, I've sent that message out about the black suits and guys have shown up in a black suit and <laughs> white converse or black black converse with white soles. You know, you, you, said, you said black shoes, these are black shoes, you know. Uh, or they've ironed their suit jacket with an iron, and you can see like the glazing on the <laughs> on the front of it, you know, <laughs> you because know, it had so, creases. Yeah, we had one. That's the kind of stuff, like you know, I, like for whatever bias, I wouldn't have that back you know, if somebody turns up like that. Yeah, you're off the list, you know, those, because it shows you're not up there with the client. Like the yeah. client's not going to do that. You know, or, or, yeah. <laughs> I always remember one gentleman at a yachting event we had in a, in a hotel. Uh, he was in an, out, an external position, you know, white shirt, tie, take the jacket off if you want. It's outside, you know, it's nice and warm. 
And when the client's staff contacted me to say that there was a guy standing on the back gate and he had uh, no, no sleeves in his shirt. So I went down and the guy had torn the sleeves from his white shirt because he was hot outside. So he's got black pants, black, jean, uh, black uh, slacks, black shoes, white shirt, black tie and no sleeves because uh, oh, really? it was hot. <laughs> like in what world does that enter your decision making model? <laughs> yeah. And this is what's going to be at hotel quarantine. For you. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm scared, Josh. So I, I want to be I want to be respectful of your time. We're going over over an hour here. Uh, if I get a last couple of bits, quick quick fire ones. Uh, if you could give one piece of advice to people entering the industry now, what would it be? Uh, listen to the good, ignore the bad. There's so much crap flies around the industry. Work out what's crap and ignore it. Listen to what makes sense. Um, we're all products of everybody that we've worked from and worked with and learned from. You know, you, everyone you work with, you might learn one little thing, take it with you and leave the rest. Mm -hmm. uh, what does the word security mean to you, to Josh Reeve? <laughs> when you say provide security, what does that mean to you? But it's, 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 a, it's a tailored holistic service that, that meets the client's needs. There's no one word. And I think that is a trap that we fall into I've done security. I know what security is. Like you said, I'm going to tell you what that is. Um, and that's where we go wrong. It's mm -hmm. and lending that. Last one then. What's next for Josh and what's next for Empire? Right. We're, we're uh, looking forward to the borders opening so we can get back to a lot of our uh, travel protection work, um, getting back out around the world. Uh, until then, I am typing nearly all day, every day on new courses and programs. We're at the Empire Institute. We've partnered with um, some, some expert providers. Uh, one thing we've done is like, I know what I'm, or, you know, my, myself and my team, we know what we're experts in and we know what we're not. Where we're not experts, we go find people that are and we bring their programs in. So, you know, you're not just hearing something that I learned off someone else 10 years ago that I now regurgitate. Um, that's not what we want to be about. So on our platform, we've got, for example, an open source intelligence uh, training program that comes from like recognizably one of the world's best outfits in that in that space. You know, it's on our platform. It takes you to their their content, their information. Um, uh, you know, we, we we're in an effort to create a center for excellence so that um, you know it's a one stop shop for for learning and and, and expansion. Um, we're not being selfish about trying to own all that content or take credit for all of that. It's just about you know, providing that opportunity for everybody to get there. Um, so that's probably a big focus until we can get out and about traveling again. Okay. Just keep, keep putting that content out and getting as much as possible. Um, we have put a, a, a discount code on for your listeners today. So if they go to empireinstitute.com.au, head to the store. And if you want to do the, hostile environment course or the travel risk management course uh, as you register just enter T-O T for Tango O for Oscar uh, three zero that's 30 percent off uh, that oh, program. thank you very much I'm sure you'll appreciate it that's, that, that's until the end of March so everyone can yeah brilliant thank you very much Josh and if people want to get in touch with you talk to you about security about training etc etc where's the best place to get in touch with you absolutely hit me up on LinkedIn under Josh Reeve uh, hit me up at joshreeve at empireprotection.com.au. Um, we have the Institute website. We have our operational website. Uh, 
fireprotection.com.au. Pretty active on LinkedIn and things like that. So more than happy to speak with anyone anytime. I follow you on LinkedIn just for some of the controversial stuff that you post up there. I think it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> Outspoken is the word I was looking for there, Josh. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks very much, Josh. I really appreciate you coming on. Like I said, it's looking like you're going to be our first international guest to run. So I, I appreciate you taking time and you're taking time out of your evening as well, which is, which is, uh, which is good. Uh, so thank, thank you very thank much. Thank you so much for having um, me on. I've followed your stuff for a long time and will continue to do so. Brilliant, brilliant. Thank you very much. So uh might actually get you back on after we have our quarantine program off of here and see can we compare notes on it and see how that's gone. But uh thank you very much. I wish you the best of luck. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Security Operative Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show and got some value. If you'd like to follow more of our activity, you can find us on any of our social channels at Security Operative Consultancy Services. See you next time.